Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So 39 years ago, and it's so easy to look back on 39 years ago and say that's so great that they had the courage and the faith to step out and actually do what God called them to do and plant this church and run on the fumes of that. We do that and we completely miss the boat. Um, In 2018, we need to be the type of people that those guys were like back in 79 with the courage to step into what it is that God's called us to do and, and to live that out every day. Not, not as people who are timid or, or sketchy or just kind of like cultural Christians flying under the radar, but actually people who are vibrantly living it out. And so during the Burden of 79 series, we've been like going back to what is, was it within our articles of faith that, that united us as a church back then that still unite us today, that we still are stepping into the burden that Christ has given us in 2018. So if you've got your Bibles, if you could open them on up, or if you have a Bible on your phone, go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 24. This is a passage um, that Jesus speaks into the next thing that we're covering. And, and, and during the burden of 79, we've been going through our articles of faith because we, we've been saying, you know, you don't make your beliefs, your beliefs make you. And, and so we've been looking at what is it that we believe and how does that impact our everyday life? Not just from a hypothetical or theological or, or whatever, but actually like legitimate everyday life. How does that shape us, change us, alter us? And Matthew 24, 36 through, 30, through 44 is Jesus speaking into somewhat of what we talked about last week with communion. Last week we talked about how, how when we, whenever we take communion, we're lifting the third cup of Passover, Passover had four cups. The third cup was, uh, was nicknamed the cup of betrothal. It was like the proposal to a fiance. And, and, and so whenever we drink of, of the communion, we we're actually renewing our vows and, and re- realizing that we, we haven't had the full on reunited with Jesus. Jesus hasn't made all things new. That's the wedding. And the scripture talks about that happening at the end. And we don't know when he's coming back, but we know that until then, we're, ret- we're drinking of the third cup. We talked about how uh, Jesus used with his disciples a, a Jewish metaphor of a kid who, who goes and proposes to his fiance with the cup of betrothal. And if she, once she says yes, he books it back home because he's got to build the house. And he's got to, it was always an extension of the father's property. And he'd build and build and build. And, but he didn't get to say, whew, we're done. I can go get married now. Only the dad could sign off on that. The dad had, was the final inspector and said, okay, this house will kill Nobody, and so you can you can occupy this place, and you give, would give the occupancy permit, and then that guy would go and find the girl, and they would actually have that huge wedding where they would drink of the fourth cup, the cup of the wedding, and so that. And, and but but the thing is, is that that son who's building that house has no idea when the father is going to sign off for the occupancy. I mean, he didn't know the day or the hour. He just knew that he was going to continue to work until the father said, "It's time." And Jesus tells his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there's many rooms. If it wasn't so, I would have told you that. And he also steps in in chapter 24 of Matthew with this. This is before the cross. Words that would have meant so much more after the cross. And once the disciples are like, oh, now I get it. We get a chance to read today with perspective. So if you could stand as we read Matthew chapter 24. But about that day or hour, Jesus is talking about his return, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming days of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. 
That's how it's going to be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have, kept, would have let his house, not let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants of his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose that a servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he's not aware of. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Matthew speaks into this or Matthew records Jesus speaking into the question that we have before us today, which is, when will Jesus return? And what should I do until then? And honestly, as you've, I mean, if you were paying attention at all to what Jesus said, we know that 50% of this question is already answered. When will Jesus return? Yeah, that's exactly right. We don't know. You're like, ah, I missed it. I missed it. We don't know. Jesus said, even he doesn't know. And so we don't, we don't know. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. But, we, but the question that's before us is how I should live now, what I should do until then. And the thing is that if this was just a religious question, that'd be one thing. If it was just like, okay, let's get a bunch of Christians together because talking about the end of the world is what Christians do because we talk about Jesus returning and stuff, that'd be one thing. But it's not just a Christian thing. In fact, everybody, whether you're a Christian or an atheist, thinks about the end of the world. Every religion, every human being thinks about the end of the world. Our culture thinks about the end of the world. Like our, our culture describes the end of the world coming by way of a man-made ecological disaster like extreme climate change or something that takes place within the climate that, that man kind of triggered uh, or some type of catastrophic natural disaster like an asteroid or maybe the, the sun exploding or some type of world-ending war where humanity it turns upon itself and, and all of a sudden the world is ended because of mankind, because of humanity. But, but culture doesn't just do that in film. Science ha speaks into this as well. Science similarly says the end of the world is coming. And it's going to come by way of ma a man-made ecological disaster like extreme climate change or perhaps a catastrophic disaster like the sun blowing up in four to five billion years or some type of asteroid hitting the earth or more likely a world-ending war. Um, this is actually what many scientists believe is far more probable or at least far more imminent for us to be worried about is that the world is going to come to an end because of our own hand, because of mankind is going to ultimately turn upon itself. But it's okay. We can breathe easy because we have a savior. Elon Musk. Elon Musk is going to get us to Mars... And he's actually spoken into the fact that the motivating force behind getting us to Mars is because World War III is coming. We are going to have World War III and we're going to have a new Dark Ages. And so we need to get to Mars before that happens so that when everyone on Earth blows themselves up, we can wait it out on Mars and then get back and recolonize planet Earth if it's habitable. So science speaks into it. Culture speaks into it. And... Again, Christians speak into it. And so that's our task before us today is to find out as a church, because everyone believes the end of the world is coming, and this isn't new, 
It's not a new conversation. It's not even a new question. How's it going to happen? We actually can get into what does Scripture say about that. And so if you've got your notes, you can take those out. Um, otherwise, you can take your notes on, on uh, version. It's on there as well. But let's go ahead and read uh, for us what our Articles of Faith say about the matter. It starts off with this. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ will return personally, visibly, and what? Unexpectedly, which means that you should expect surprise. And it sounds oxymoronic, but you should expect surprise. That means that you can't know when it's going to happen. It's, it's kind of like, um, like, well, um, I, went to, I went to see Creed II um, with the Jankowskis, and I realized why it's a challenge to see any movie with Pastor Dave, um, because he likes to interact with the, uh, with, the, with, the, with the movie. And like, uh, uh, and uh, Creed goes down. And it, you just hear, and I'm nine seats away from him. Done. He's D-U-N. Done. And I'm just like, oh. And all of a sudden I had a flashback to this, expecting surprise. I, went, I remember going and seeing um, uh, What Lies Beneath, the Harrison Ford thriller. And you go into a, mo- a movie that's a thriller knowing you're going to have jump scares. You know, there's going to be moments where someone's going to jump out and you're like, yeah, yeah, like doing that type of thing. And, and so I knew that, but I, I didn't yet know that he was an interactor, a screen talker. And so we're, we're, I'm sitting next to him and all of a sudden he's like, uh-oh, uh-oh, it's, something's going to happen. The music's going up. He's behind that door. He's behind that door. I bet you money he's behind that door. Oh, there he is. Now here's the thing. Harrison Ford was behind the door, but here's the funny thing. He still jumped. (laughs) Why did he jump? Because it still was a surprise. He was expecting it. He was narrating every second leading up to it. He could tell you what was happening with the musical score, but he was still jump shocked. It still was something that took him aback. And that is actually exactly what we're going to experience as Christians. When Jesus comes back, the scripture says that he's going to come back upon the clouds, which is an, an, illustri- like an indicator for anyone who had a Jewish backdrop to know God is present in this. God was present in the clouds when, when God was guiding the, the Hebrews through the wilderness. He guided them through a cloud. When the tabernacle where God dwelled for, before man, there was a cloud above that tent. When Jesus was in the transfiguration, it was clouds all around him. And so this was an indicator for everyone. You know that thing we've always been praying for, that we could actually see Jesus? Everyone who never walked with Jesus, we've been like, man, I, I follow Jesus, but wouldn't it be awesome to actually see and talk and follow him like face to face? In that moment, we have that. But what we will not have is this. Oh, I did not see that coming. I cannot, he's coming through that. I did not see that coming. We are not going to be blindsided, but we will be surprised. It's going to come at a time and a date that we don't know. So Christians, here's something that we struggle with. Because we get all freaky geeky about end time stuff. And there's always going to be someone on YouTube that's saying the end is going to happen on this date. Or because the the planets are aligned in such a way, it's going to happen. That happened earlier this year, I think, even. If anyone tells you, I know the time or date, say, no, you don't. If they're saying, no, but I'm selling a book, oh, then you really don't know, okay? Go the opposite direction. Why? Because Jesus himself says, but about the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. 
Uh, I, I've talked about this before, but back in 2011, there was this big old, this is like before 2012 in the Mayan calendar, but a year before, there was this guy named Harold Camping who said that the world was going to end on May 21st, 2011. And he, and he was like adamant about it. He, he had gone through the Bible and done some like adding and subtracting and calculus or something, things I would never understand, and was able to come out with May 21st, 2011 as being the day that Jesus was going to return. And, and this was a movement internationally about it. People were getting all like psyched about May 21st, 2011. And I, I, it just offended me so greatly to see things like wecanknow.com, to which I wanted to just launch a new website, no you can't.com. And, the thing, and I was so frustrated with Harold Camping because I'm like, look, Harold, you're saying you know when Jesus is going to return? When Jesus says Jesus doesn't know when he's going to return? How do you know more than Christ? So I called the radio station because Harold Camping, he, it was just a radio station that he was putting out all this, that he was getting everyone psyched up about Jesus returning on May 21st, 2011. I wanted to know if they were really serious about this. And so I asked the person, I got through some representative in the, in the company, I said, so you're, you're for real, May 21st, 2011 of this year, you, Jesus is coming back? Oh, yes. You, like, you're all in on that, for real? Oh, yes, absolutely. We completely believe what Harold Camping is saying on this. Really? Like, you want to take a faith step in that? Oh, we, we're already taking faith steps in that. I'm like, great, I got another one for you. You guys are a radio station. You have some awesome sound equipment. I want you to donate to Manuka Bible Church all of your soundboards. Because after the 21st, you ain't gonna need it. Because you're gonna be gone. <laughs> but I'm confident of the fact that we're still gonna be here. So, why don't you take a faith step? We could do this legally, and we get like some lawyer to sign off on this, and you guys can donate out your sound equipment to Manuka Bible Church, the church that will be left behind. <laughs> and they said, we can't do that. I said, no, you can't. Of course you can't. And the reason they can't is because they knew in their heart of hearts that Jesus was right, that you can't know the time or date. But we should be, we should expect, live in expectation that he is going. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it could happen today. We have no idea. The second part is this. The dead will be raised. Once Jesus returns, the dead will be raised and Christ will judge all people in righteousness. Now there's a word right there that we absolutely love. Judge. Everyone loves to be judged. All of us. Like, was, I'm sure it's happened to you. You've come home from work or from school, and, you're like, and your parents or your spouse or someone asks you, so how was today? Oh, it was amazing. Everybody judged me. Like, everybody. Why don't we like being judged? We don't like being judged because we're like, who are you? Who are you to judge me? Because the person that's judging us is a fractured, broken person just like us. So like, get off your pedestal. You have no right to judge me. But this is not being judged by another human. The dead will be raised and Christ will be, judge people in what? In righteousness. He's the only one who's got the caliber and the holiness and the justice and the righteousness to judge you and you know that was right. That was right. And so for Christians, our new favorite word is going to be judgment. Jesus is going to come back and it's going to be like, I'm so, so grateful for judgment. For a Christian, judgment is going to be good. You know what it's like when you finish finals? Or if you've known anyone that's taken the bar exam when they're done with that, they're turning in their papers to be judged, but they're so relieved. They don't know what they got. They have no clue, but they're just like, it's over. It's done. It's done. When Jesus returns and judges in righteousness, all the pain, all the trial, all the tests, all of it is done. 
And for Christians, it's not a judgment of have you done enough because enough has already been done by Jesus. When people think of the end of the world, they think of judgment, but before judgment is the final battle. Like a lot of times when people think of what's another word for the end of the world, a lot of people would use the word Armageddon, right? Well, let's go to that. Armageddon. Armageddon is actually um, not, it does not mean the end of the world. A lot of times people would say, what does Armageddon mean? It means the end of the world. It doesn't. It's actually a compound word that is a, a mix between Har and Mageddon, which is another word for hill and Megiddo. It's the hill of Megiddo. And it's actually a place. You can go there today. A bunch of people in our church just went there this, this past, earlier this year. It's this military fortress upon military fortress upon military fortress. It's at this crossroads of the, this superhighway where all these battles were taking place. It was the, the checkout point right above the, the Valley of Jezreel. So many battles have taken place throughout history at the Valley of Jezreel that they say that the crops of Jezreel were watered by the blood of the fallen. So many. And so in, the end of the, so in the book of Revelation, it's talked about Jesus returning for the final battle, but it's not a bloodbath. It's really interesting. Jesus returns on this horse, and it, the, the, it, it's, the book of Revelation is, is so crazy symbolic, but it's all symbolism for something that's real. Jesus', Jesus is, uh, his clothes are described as bloody, but they're bloody before the battle. He didn't just get through killing someone and that's why he's bloody. His clothes are bloody before the battle. Why? Whose blood is on his clothes? His own. Jesus comes into the battle having already won the battle because of what took place on the cross. And then all of a sudden it's describing that he then engages the battle. And he doesn't engage the battle by slicing and dicing people to pieces. He enters the battle by opening his mouth and in the symbolic way that John records that, that vision, it's the sword of his words. And the words that he pronounces over that battle is justice. All of a sudden, justice takes place, which means that all the hell that we have brought into this planet, all the hell that we have brought into our relationships and all the hell that we've brought into with our rebellion from God and whether it's relational decision, sexual decision, or gossip decision, pride, whatever it is, all, all the hell that we've brought in Anyone who says, I don't want or need God is given the justice and the accountability of not having him. And that wickedness is quarantined away to a place called hell. And that is something that is separated away from ever being able to harm God's kids ever again. But for God's kids, after the final battle, they actually go into a period of judgment. And that judgment is amazing. Because again, it's not, are you in or are you out of heaven? Have you done enough good deeds or not? The judgment that we have as believers is because you're already in because of Christ. Everything you have done since being a follower of Jesus in obedience to God. Every decision that was difficult relationally, but you did it or you didn't do it because of Jesus, you get an eternal reward. And we don't, as Christians, do stuff so God gives us some type of kickback in in eternity. But God's a good father. And any good father would want to honor his kid's obedience by saying, I know you didn't do this for this, but I want to bless you because of your obedience. And scripture records that what we do in this life for him echoes into eternity in that reward, that blessing. Judgment for a Christian will be your new favorite word because God's judgment is righteous. And so because of that, we get to the final part, which says this. The coming of Christ, and I love this phrase, our blessed hope 
demands constant expectancy and motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Is it, is it guilt and shame that motivates godly living? Nope. Is it like a nagging parent or grandparent? Nope. What is it? Jesus is returning. Our blessed hope is returning. And because of that, we're going to make decisions that are going to be radically different. We're going to actually do this. We're going to live every single day like it could be the day. We are not people who are bench sitters. We're not simply lethargically or apathetically sitting this one out and just like, well, Jesus is going to come back one day. As Christians, we do not sit and wait for our Messiah. We do not. We live every single day intentionally for our Messiah until the day we see our Messiah. We live every single day following his lead, every single day following him as if today is the day. And folks, this is where we need to wake up because just like what Jesus said in this passage when he says, therefore, keep watch. The reason he's saying keep watch and he describes in the time of Noah that people were just like going through life status quo. And we do this. We go through everyday life like it's just the same old thing. Bill's relationship drama. Bill's relationship drama. Those are the, the cycle of life. And we go, we repeat it. Okay, we got through the Thanksgiving holidays. Nobody died. Let's keep on moving on to Christmas. And then all of a sudden we go through that. And like, well, do we have enough finances for this? Or, or man, I'm struggling with this. And we got to start planning for 2019. And the kids are going here. And do we have enough for that? And oh, oh man, this terrible thing happened in our family. This great thing happened at work. And, and it's just a stupid cycle of stuff, a lot of which doesn't matter. What if we lived each day? Like, what if you live today? Let's just start with today. Like, Jesus is going to come back at 7 p.m. tonight. What if we did that? What would that change for you if you knew Jesus was going to come back in a matter of hours? Like, nine hours from now, Jesus is returned. What, what would that change? Here's how we live this way. We trade off three things. First off, we trade academics for action. We trade academics for action. Listen to what Jesus says again. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And, and he says in a couple sentences later, so you must be ready. Now, we, now, a lot of times as Christians, we geek out on end time stuff thinking that we need to be ready because if we study the book of Revelation enough, we're going to figure out the code. We're going to figure out what to say. You know, oh, you know what? The end's coming right now. We got it. We're, we're going to jump in on it because we know that he's coming. Jesus says, be ready. And then he says, be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour. You do not expect him. In other words, what we need to do as Christians is do this. We don't simply sink ourselves academically into end time study as if like if we have, and, and some of us as Christians, we geek out on that. We really do. Like you've got your, your first tattoo is like, the, you know, the tribulational timeline or something. And some of us are like that. And I get that. That's why, I mean, even if you're not a Christian, there's something about end of the world stuff and prophecy that like, woo, this is bestseller stuff. And we get drawn into it. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying in chapter 24. Jesus is saying in chapter 24, be ready, study my word, but you're not going to figure out when I'm coming. Live each day. Don't, not simply academically knowing, but each day in action, living out the action steps of that. Um, that, whole, that word blessed hope is so important because uh, in Titus it says this, this teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself 
for us to redeem us from all wickedness. And so the, the, the way that we train, we, we don't simply academically know Jesus is going to return. We're doing, we're living each day that way. My home state of California has experienced, if you've paid attention to the news at all, experienced absolute calamity, especially in Paradise, uh, Paradise, California. It's a town that just got taken out and this, this massive firestorm came through and just barreled through and took out neighborhoods upon neighborhoods upon neighborhoods. There's like 80 plus people known dead and hundreds still missing as they're combing through the rubble trying to find any survivors or to recover the bodies of the fallen. The tragedy of this is not just what happened. The tragedy of this is what took place 10 years ago in paradise because a fire came right up to paradise and stopped. And that woke up all of the leaders in paradise and all the residents in paradise to say, we need to be ready for when this happens again. So they pumped in a bunch of money to try to come up with evacuation plans, to know how to handle it, to know how to get out. Everyone was told to have a go bag, things that you could just like, you put and you're ready to go. If an earthquake happens or a fire happens, it's not if it's going to happen, when it happens, we'll be ready to go and we can evacuate in an orderly fashion. And that didn't happen in 2018. Over time, people forgot over time, people were thinking about their kids going off to college and Thanksgiving and family drama, and they were thinking about Super Bowl, and they were thinking about what movies were out, and thinking about what their friends are going to do. Did he break up with me? Did he not? They were thinking about these things. What they weren't thinking about is the imminent fire that was coming their way in a matter of months, and then it's all gone, and every single person is like, I just wish I would have been ready when they had the evacuation plans in place. They just forgot. They didn't invest enough time. They weren't ready. Are you ready? Are you ready? Like if today was the day, would you be shocked? Is your life lived with a go bag where you're ready to go? If Jesus came back today, you could say, look, I'm not perfect. Certainly, I've got regrets, but I'm good to go today. Today is a good day to die. Today is a good day for Jesus to return. You do that by trading the simple academic reality that he's returning with action steps. And so I want you to think about that. If today is the day, what relationships need to be mended in your world? Today, if Jesus was coming today, who would you want to call and apologize to before that happened? Like you might have been like, you know, no, my family was great. And then Thanksgiving happened. Like, oh, now I got a phone call. And you have to make phone calls because of that. For some of us in here, it's, it's different. Like, it's, it's, who in your world right now have you been like, yeah, I know, they know that I'm a Christian, but I haven't been living it. And there's people I know that are far from Christ. They don't have a faith in Christ. And if Jesus came back today, it would be over. Who have you not told that you go to school with, that you go to work with, that you live with, because if Jesus was coming back today, who, who would you, if you knew that, if you knew for a fact it was going to happen today, who would you want to tell? Take action. Don't be surprised. Expect surprise that Jesus is going to come back when you're not expecting it. But it's expectant. Live with that expectation and take action. If you're nursing a sin right now, like there's a sin issue and you know it, I don't know it, but you know it. And it's just something that's kind of become part of you. And it's hard to think of living your life without it. If you knew Jesus was coming back today, wouldn't you want that to be something that you had already surrendered over to him?
wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want that to be part of what he's rewarding you for? The fact that this incredibly difficult, painful thing to let go of, you actually did in his name? What if today was that day for you where you took action and started living the holy life that Christ authored for you to live? Take action today. Second trade is trading aversion for allegiance. A lot of times we get into a place in our uh, relationship with God where you went, you start off and you were super psyched and stoked about the fact that Jesus loves you, this you know, for the Bible tells you so. But then all of a sudden you realize not everyone sings that song. And you start to realize very quickly that, that when Jesus comes up or Christianity comes up or faith comes up in a conversation, you're silently walking yourself back out of it because you don't want to bring it up. Because honestly, people that, are, that are, have their allegiance dedicated to Jesus sometimes are weird And so for you, it's been something where you've had more of an aversion for Christ. And honestly, even saying that you're a Christian seems awkward. The end of the the Bible, in the book of Revelation, there's this thing that um, everyone, even if you're not a Christian, knows about. And it's, it's the number 666, especially if you liked 80s metal band. 666 is all over it. So 666 is something that, that, that um, is this, the mark of the beast. And everyone's like, what does it mean? And, 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 you, and the mark of the beast, it's something, where, where do you get the, the, the mark of the beast? Where, what two places? Forehead and on your wrist or your hand somewhere, right? And so Christians are like, I mean, they're really, really terrified. About, I mean, Christians used to be terrified of barcodes on food, like, <gasps> Frosted Flakes has a barcode. It's a mark of the beast. I got a visa. <gasps> It's got a swipe card. The mark of the beast. I don't use a key to get into my hotel room. They gave me a card. I go, Bleak, and the door opens. Mark of the beast. And people were freaked out that I'm going to sometime, somehow inadvertently take 666 uh, as the mark of the beast. Or I know what they're going to do. They're going to insert it into my hand or put it on my forehead. No. The mark of the beast in the book of Revelation is, is actually a, a, uh, an allusion to what's taking place in Daniel's prophecy. He talks about there being two beasts that, that are, are, are occupying the world powers. And it's, it's basically the beast of military might and the economic propaganda machine that deifies military might. Basically, in the end of the, uh, end of the Bible, you've got this, this picture of a governmental system that says, we don't need your God, we don't need your Savior, we are self-sufficient, we are God, and the propaganda machine that supports that. 666, the mark of the beast, is saying, the two, those two places that you're receiving them, you're, it's, it's saying, what we control are your thoughts, And your actions, your actions and your thoughts are given in allegiance to us, the military might, the powerful world system. And in the time of the writing of that vision, that when John received that vision, um, he, John speaks Hebrew and Greek. And Hebrew, oftentimes they would use the numeric value of each of the letters to spell out something. 666, the numeric value of that comes up with Nero Caesar, who was the military might, superpower of the world at the time that was the biggest threat to Christianity, who said, you bow before Caesar, you bow before me. And Christians said, we'd rather die because you are not Lord Caesar, Jesus is Lord. And so their statement was, I am not dedicating my allegiance, my thoughts, or my actions to you. My dedication to my allegiance is to God. And again, John is writing a group of people who understand the Hebrew significance of the forehead and the hand. 666 is an anti-Shema. The Shema is the prayer in the Old Testament. The prayer of allegiance to God, dedicating all thoughts and actions to him. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And in that passage, it talks about taking these truths and binding them around your hand and putting them on your forehead. Why? 
so that people would wear funky things on their hands and their forehead. People do to this day if you're ultra-Orthodox Jewish. But what he was saying is, God is the one who our thoughts and the works of our hands is dedicated. We are allegiances to him. And so basically the way that we trade aversion for allegiance is simply saying this, is because what, what, what John is talking about is not just a first century thing with Nero. It's a second century thing and a third century thing and a 21st century thing. We will always be in a system, whether it's governmental or, or it's your school government or it, it's your friend group or it's the people you hang with in your community. It's your fa- whatever that says we are self-sufficient. We do not need Christ. We do not need God. We don't need you. And, to, and you need to, if you're gonna occupy, if you're gonna do life, you need to do life in such a way that bows to materialism, that bows to the superpower of consumerism, that bows to military might, to which the Christian says, nope, not going to do it. My allegiance, my thoughts, and my actions aren't enslaved to your world system, not the mark of the beast, 666. My allegiance is to the one true God. Live that out. Live out the prayer of the Shema every day. Trade aversion for Jesus with bits and steps of allegiance. You do this by simply stepping into your systems, starting with your, your closest relationships and say, I want to show my allegiance to Jesus versus my allegiance to how everyone else does stuff apart from Jesus, starting with my closest relationships. Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your parental relationships, your kid relationships, your sibling relationships, you're showing your allegiance for Jesus there first. And then let that go out to where you work, where you go to school, the people you hang with. Let the allegiance to Jesus start small and keep on building so you're proud that you're connected to Christ. No matter what people say, and they're gonna say weird things about you, that's okay, but you're proud of your allegiance to Jesus because he could be coming back today. And do you wanna be the person that's living in denial of him by your actions today or one who's living in the allegiance? Trade aversion for allegiance. Third trade is to trade apathy for anticipation. And again, this is my Achilles heel. My biggest problem with Jesus' return is not that I don't believe that it's going to happen. I do believe it's going to happen. I just don't care. My life shows that I don't care because I get super occupied with everything else going on in life, the anxieties and the stress and the drama. That's my focal point. If, if my thoughts were a checkbook and you could look through how, what is Errol investing in, it would be in my drama, my world, not the fact that Jesus is returning and the hope I have in him. And yet Christ is calling us to live with the expectation and the anticipation of that. And let that speak into not only the apathy, but, but the pain that we're, we're going through. Let the fact that Jesus is returning dictate that, dictate our, our perspective. How many of you have got, got into the show when it was on? 24. Okay, how many of you, not so much? 24 is a show where there's not a whole lot of people who are like, yeah, I kind of liked it. You're either like, uh, I never watched it, not into it, don't like it, or I love it, I can't get enough of it. There's like a cult of 24. And it's like people who, like, like a lot of shows, it was designed that if you had it on DVD or you're watching it streaming, you got to the end of one, you're like, okay, just one more. Which led to eight more. We're to the point where you're living in your house 24 hours a day, watching the season of 24. 24 is where Jack Bauer is trying to save the world in 24 hours, and he does so like eight times throughout the season. And, and um, every show is like, it's got this ticking time clock. And uh, Francis Chan talks about this. He's a pastor and writer, and he talked about how um, 
This, the, he, he really liked the first season, but he didn't have cable and he, and he didn't have t- television really. And so um, he couldn't watch the second season. And everyone was on like third or fourth season. Um, so someone bought him season two on DVD. And so he's watching season two and he was like getting really into it. And he was the type of guy who's like getting super intense, like Jack Bauer is going to die. And there's this one storyline in the show where, where um, the Secretary of State is, is held hostage by these terrorists at this undisclosed location. No one knows where they are. And it also has the Secretary of State's daughter, which is Jack Bauer's girlfriend, and no one can find him. But Jack Bauer can find him because he's Keith or Sutherland. He can do this. And he figures out all the, the clues and he gets there and finally he finds the location and, he, and he, like, he calls up the government and he's like, okay, we need to send backup. I know where they are. They're like, okay, we'll be there in five minutes. We don't have five minutes. They'll be dead in five minutes. I'm going in alone. And Francis Chan's like, no, no, don't do it, Jack. You're going to die. There's like a hundred guys back there. You can't kill them all. There's no way possible that you're going to make this happen. And then all of a sudden, as the anxiety is building and he's nearing like having a stroke as he's watching 24, what's going to happen with Jack Bauer? It occurs to him, this is season two. (laughs) There's a third season. He's going to be fine. In that moment, all the anxiety robbed out of the situation. Why? Because he knows how it's going to end. Ladies and gentlemen, that's how we are as Christians. And the anxiety, this year has been a very difficult year for many of you, many of you. Physically, financially, emotionally, relationally. And sometimes it's so easy to think this is it. This is not. We have the joyful anticipation that Jesus is going to return. We're going to talk about that next week. What happens after we die? What happens after he returns? But this week, I want you to know that you can live every day like it is the day because you know you have the hope of the reality. He's returning, which doesn't make you apathetic. It makes you energetic. When will Jesus return and what shall I do till then? I don't know, but it could be today. Live today with the anticipation, the allegiance, and the action to the Savior who is our blessed hope. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, we lift that up to you. You are our blessed hope. I pray that you energize us and stoke us into realizing that we need to live differently because of your return. This doesn't cause us to be more casual, but more passionate. This doesn't cause us to make um, lighter decisions about our sin, but more difficult ones where we get rid of sin that we've been holding on to. We pray that you do this in our heart today. And Lord, whenever we return, though we will be surprised, the expectation between now and then will make that moment all the greater as we see what you're about to do when you make all things new. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You are dismissed. See you next week.